If, like me, you spend much of your life sitting in front of an Apple computer or uh, walk around wearing an Apple Watch or have an iPod or an iPad or uh, for any reason are interested in what Apple has created for the world and how they have changed the world, then I urge you to seek out an incredibly interesting book called After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. The author is Trip Mickle, technology reporter for the New York Times. And that title, of course, refers to Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. And the book primarily is a look at how Apple has functioned in the wake of Steve Jobs' sudden and untimely death uh, from from cancer. And uh, it is primarily a look at two of the most important figures to lead Apple in the wake of Steve Jobs' death, uh, Tim Cook and Jonathan Ive, two gentlemen very, very different from each other, but each bringing to the company their own brand of peculiar, even unique genius. And uh, it is also genius that was sometimes in conflict. And, uh, And in some respects, this book is the story of kind of a struggle for Apple's soul. And, of course, it's also the story of a company achieving extraordinary success and then facing the incredible challenge of trying to equal that success, perpetuate that success, top that success with yet another life-changing, world-changing innovation. The book is superbly written, and it's published by William Morrill, and I'm very honored to be able to speak with its author, Trip Mickle. The book, again titled After Steve, How Apple Became a $2 Trillion Company and Lost Its Soul. Trip Mickle, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. I love the book in so many ways. I got to say that one of the things I really appreciate it is that I'm not a particularly technologically astute person, and yet I found almost nothing in the book confusing. And I wonder what kind of a challenge it was for you, and maybe in general, as somebody who writes about technology, that some of the people who read what you write uh, are very much steeped in the world of technology, and others come to it, uh, maybe as I do, uh, sometimes struggling to to grasp it all. What kind of a challenge is it for you in terms of how to tell a story like this in a way that most people are going to be able to understand? Yeah, no, it's a fair point, and it's something we wrestle with often as business reporters and technology reporters. Both of those subject areas are incredibly complex and complicated, and people can get can get lost in the nuances of it. And so uh, the goal of a reporter is often to just become as uh, deeply knowledgeable on the subject matter as po- as possible and then step back and say, okay, well, how would I explain this to my mother um, or to, you know, a grandparent or something like that? Somebody who just comes, comes at, at, at a subject from a totally different vantage point than the people you're talking to about that subject. Um, and in doing so, you uh, you pair you pair things back and try to make them uh, try to make w- your explanations or your descriptions of, of technology and how it's developed as simplistic as possible, so that people can really grasp what you're what you're writing about. Um, beyond that, I, I always find that that I'm drawn to stories about people, uh, and in this case, um, that was 
that was much of the driving uh, force behind why I chose to focus on two individuals who are at the heart of the Apple story, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. They are really emblematic of the changes that took place at the company over, over the course of the past decade and representative of, of kind of the, the two sides of Apple that have been so critical to its success, this creative side, as represented by Johnny Ive, and then this operational side, which took products and you know, brought them to life on the manufacturing floor and shipped them around the world, and that's represented by Tim Cook. Hmm. I suppose in some ways that's why this book was so incredibly interesting to me and would be to just about anybody, because uh, although it is certainly a story about technology and innovative products and how they are created and so on, this, more than anything, you are absolutely right, is a story about people and how people work together and how sometimes what makes them different can be an incredible uh, force for good. (laughs) And in some ways, differences between people can be very, very counterproductive. And uh, all of this plays out as as a fascinating human drama. One other question before we get into the heart of the book. At the outset, you have two really interesting quotes, one of them from George Bernard Shaw that says this, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Uh, I guess your book is uh, is heavily populated with... Uh, examples of the unreasonable man or unreasonable woman. And I suspect that one of the things that makes this story particularly interesting is that this plays out in a lot of different ways. And it isn't just Steve Jobs who is an example of that. No, I mean, in fact, that's a quote that that Johnny Ive, the chief design officer at Apple, often uh, speaks about publicly because he feels like it's it's sort of his his reason for being and, and what what drives him as he tries to develop and think through some of the potential products that Apple plans to introduce to the world. Um, you know, at the same time, it, it, it also speaks to some of the sensibilities of Tim Cook, his, his foil, the, 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 uh, left, the, the left brain figure at, at the heart of Apple who could be unreasonable in his expectations for how many iPhones came off an assembly line that functioned perfectly um, relative to those that needed to be discarded because they had some kind of imperfection or flaw. Uh, he was unreasonable in, in demanding that what they call yield be extremely high, upwards of 98% or more, um, so that there was no discarded component or, or factory or, or uh, aspect of an iPhone that had to be left by the wayside. They, they got maximum usage out of everything they bought and purchased to put into the product. You talked to hundreds of people before you wrote After Steve, and, uh, and many of them uh, Apple employees uh, or former Apple employees uh, and, and other people as well who play some kind of role in this sprawling story. Of course, one of the things that is uh, inescapable is that when you are talking, for instance, about two people as different as Jonathan Ive and Tim Cook, uh, and somebody as controversial as, for instance, Steve Jobs, and when you're talking about lots of other people who uh, figure in your book, 
uh, there are going to be different opinions about them and about what they were like and different responses uh, to, for instance, their personality and way of working. And uh, you talk in your acknowledgments or at some point, maybe the authors note about how when there are conflicting accounts about what happened or why it happened or how it happened, uh, you would end up sharing with us what you regarded as the most plausible account. Uh, behind those simple words is, is, of course, a world of complexity. Uh, how would you summarize that process, a very challenging process, I should think, of trying to arrive at the most plausible account of something that was done or said or occurred uh, in which there might be very, very different opinions or accounts of how it happened? Um, you know, there's that's a fundamental aspect of the reporting process in general is that, you know, there are going to be people who experience things from different vantage points and have different points of view about how an event unfolded or how an event played out, or there could be things going on concurrently, um, that, that weave themselves together. And so, uh, someone in one division of of the company, in this case, Apple may not know that, something some similar work is being done in another division of the company. I think one example of this in the book is the the story of how the Apple Watch process began within Apple's industrial design studio, which is at the at the kind of the top of uh, the pyramid for Apple when it comes to product development. And um, you know in, in reporting on that there there's a, a moment that was described to me you know, through the course of reporting where Johnny Ive pulls a number, a small number of, of the designers he works with into a room and writes the word smartwatch on a whiteboard. And that's, that's like an, an early moment in the product's uh, conception and in their pursuit of developing that product. At the, at the same time, there was a conflicting story from within the same design studio about a designer there named Julian Honig, who was on a, text exchange with some of his college colleagues exchanging messages about you know what they could do and and floating the idea and they, the collective group floated the idea of developing a watch and he came in the next day and did a prototype of it and so that also was going on at the same time now which one came first it's impossible it's impossible to know which which moment preceded the other and so I, I include some end notes to, to highlight both of these events um, so, that, so that the reader is familiar with the fact that, you know, uh, I guess creation doesn't have, always have a single author. Hmm. I appreciate that meticulous attention to uh, getting at the truth to whatever extent it is possible. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with New York Times technology reporter Trip Mickle about his fascinating book, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and lost its soul. Uh, the book is primarily about the two gentlemen uh, who helped lead Apple in the wake of Steve Jobs' death, uh, Jonathan Ive and Tim Cook. And I want to say also, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, Mr. Mickle, that uh, I don't want people to get the wrong idea from the subtitle of your book, uh, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. I think somebody might carelessly see that subtitle and maybe assume that this is uh, maybe kind of a doom and gloom book or a book that really 
focuses somehow on the negative, on the failures, on the shortcomings, on the conflicts. And, and, and I, I think that would be a very unfair assessment of your book and of this story. This book is, as, uh, as the full subtitle suggests, is in large part a, an incredible success story, but in a sense a success story that came at a cost. Is that right, fair to say? Right. Yeah, no, that's 100% fair. And I think a lot of people have fixated on the lost its soul aspect of the, the, uh, the subtitle and overlooked um, the, the achievement of how Apple has become, um, you know, at this point, a multi-trillion dollar company. It wasn't so long ago they were flirting with a $3 trillion valuation. So the book speaks to, to two aspects of this company that were playing out, and this is playing out across Silicon Valley more broadly. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have Tim Cook, who's a financial wizard and an operational wizard who drives the company's valuation to new heights by unlocking new value through uh, a business that, that, that he finds within the iPhone called services that, um, that, are, that are things like Apple Music and TV Plus and sales of apps. And, and that's, that's quite the accomplishment, and it's the reason that Apple has um, been so successful in the eyes of Wall Street. But at the same time, it became a bigger and bigger company uh, as a consequence of just growth um, and the demands and pressures of Wall Street. And in the course of that growth, its identity has shifted, and uh, that has led to the disenchantment with, with the company among its own ranks. Um, and so the loss at Soul part is a reference to, to Johnny Ive himself. He was considered, uh, Steve Jobs considered him a spiritual partner, a creative soulmate. And Johnny Ive ultimately decides to leave the company in 2019 because he's, after growing increasingly disillusioned as it became a place where commerce dictated art rather than the place it was in its smaller days when it was more nimble and art could dictate commerce. This is just a consequence of businesses um, becoming increasingly larger as as they grow and, and meet the demands of Wall Street uh, when they're a public company. Let's talk for a moment about Steve Jobs and the way he led Apple, uh, because that is certainly something that you take some time with in your book, which I very much uh, appreciate. One of the things you tell us, it's such a fascinating image, is that Steve Jobs ultimately, once he returned to Apple after his ouster and then his triumphant return, built his company, that is Apple, like a starfish. And he was very anxious uh, when his illness became known and uh, when he knew it was not going to be around much longer. He was really anxious for those legs of the starfish uh, to remain intact. Uh, can you explain that interesting image of the starfish, how that was fitting for what Apple was, how it functioned at that point, and to what extent it remained a starfish even after Jobs' death? Yeah, as, as after Steve details, I mean, this is really based on one of uh, this, this kind of, um, I guess, analogy is based on uh, something that a, a senior executive who worked close, closely with Jobs shared with me. But Jobs put himself at, at the center of the company, and he would 
crawl out the legs of the creative aspects of the company, the creative divisions. And these were the groups that were driving the development of new product and marketing of that product. So he would spend a lot of time uh, in the design studio working with the designers. He'd have a weekly meeting with the software uh, team and the, that was developing the iPhone software. He'd, he'd meet weekly with uh, engineering and then also with with the marketing people who are coming up with the creative commercials that we all remember, such as the, you know, the iPod silhouette commercial um, with the dancing silhouettes. Uh, but he, he in many ways recognized that he was, as a consequence of this, he was the chief marketing officer of the company. He was the chief technologist uh, of the company. He was the CEO of the company. He was, he was in many ways the chief design officer. And so in one person, you were losing like four or five chiefs, right? And basically in, in, in his departure. And so he recognized that in his absence, the company would need a new way to operate. It would need to bring these teams together. And uh, because he was the one who had historically stitched together their ideas and made it possible for them to come come forward in a single product with a with a unified product vision. Hmm. And in his absence, that was going to have that was going to require kind of product development by consensus or product development by committee. And Tim Cook was really skilled in the operations side of the company at bringing together a multitude of, of people to to develop and manufacture the products that they were making. He studied this, uh, this um, engineering uh, segment at Auburn University called Industrial Engineering, and that was really it's it's really a a, science, a field of like math and science that's focused on human systems and how you get the most out of a human system, um, and that's what he had to bring to bear when he took over the company. He had to say, okay, well, how do we take this this system Apple that was created around Steve Jobs and 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 uh, was um, run forward by jobs and make it work without him. And that, that's, that was, that was a big hurdle and obstacle that they faced in 2011. Hmm. I want to talk uh, also about uh, something you've already touched on the fact that the way Steve jobs ran the company fed the perception that he was responsible for everything or to a gigantic extent responsible for every success. You write at one point, Jobs relied on the team he had assembled at Apple to do the work, but largely took credit for himself. He disapproved of staff doing interviews and discouraged talk about Apple's creative process. The strategy preserved product secrecy and lessened the likelihood that top talent would be poached by rivals. It also fed a public perception that every product was the result of individual genius, not teamwork. You write a few pages later, Jobs' practice of casting himself as the sole creator of the iPod, iPhone, and iPad had fueled doubt about Apple, what Apple could achieve without him. In other words, that perception, which he certainly allowed to occur and nurtured, uh, hurt Apple in the wake of, of Steve Jobs' death uh, when it came to investors and customers and so on. They had every reason to doubt that Apple could go on to further success without the man who uh, so many believed was solely responsible for the success it had had up to that point. Right, no, no doubt. I mean, it, 
it was obvious that there was going to be skepticism about what Apple would be without its co-founder. Jobs had, of course, uh, been, the drive, been the driving force with Steve Wozniak of the, of the early Apple computers that really define what a personal computer would be and popularize what a personal computer would be for the next three decades. And then when he returned, I mean, he pulled off this, this series of uh, unprecedented product introductions that really changed popular culture. The, you know, you had the candy-colored iMacs that made computers fun. You had uh, the iPod that made music portable again. Uh, and you had like thousands of songs portable. And then, then you had the iPhone that's become an indispensable part of our life. So there was reason when he put himself at the forefront of all of that and, and created this uh, assumption in the marketplace that he, he alone had, had been uh, key to creating all of these products, there was valid skepticism that the team that he left behind could do anything without it. You say at one point that one thing that was very important to Steve Jobs as he faced the end of his life and imagined how Apple would go on without him, he wanted, you tell us, to defy the fate of Disney, Polaroid, and Sony. Uh, I mean, other companies which, uh, I suppose, in effect, uh, had faced a similar scenario and had really suffered from it. Yeah, no, and these were companies that he was personally familiar with and and focused on during the course of his career. I mean, in in, in Sony, he had visited visited them in Japan. In Polaroid, he actually uh, he actually fashioned one of Apple's own turns of phrases after something that Edwin Land, who had created Polaroid, uh, the Polaroid camera, had used. Which um, Steve Jobs had this this famous phrase at Apple of, of saying that the company would live at the intersection of, of uh, technology and the humanities or technology and liberal arts. And that was something very similar to what Edwin Land had said. And then in the, in the case of Disney, he sold Pixar uh, to Disney. He was the chairman of Pixar. He bought it when it was a struggling, uh, struggling company trying to develop animated films. And so he became deeply familiar with the questions that dogged Disney after Walt Disney died. And that the primary question that, that everyone seemed to ask after Walt Disney's death was, what would Walt do? And it created a sense of paralysis inside the company. And they spent the better part of a decade or more without the capacity to introduce a new hit because they were so fixated on trying to think ahead and anticipate how Walt would, would solve a problem or how Walt would develop a, a film. It wasn't until Michael Eisner came in and he was an outsider that he was able to breathe new life into their animated studio and put Disney back on solid footing. Hmm. So Steve Jobs uh, ultimately has in place these two gentlemen who we've already talked, to, uh, talked about to some extent who are very different from each other, Tim Cook and Jonathan Ive. I appreciate the fact that you give us some background on each of them, and although we have by no means the time to uh, exhaustively examine their backgrounds in great detail, I just want to highlight a couple of different things. Jonathan Ive is somebody who follows in the footstep of a father who was also a designer, who taught design and nurtured this talent and interest in his gifted son. You tell us in the book that 
uh, one interesting thing with uh, young uh, Jonathan Ive is that uh, his father would uh, help him and encourage him to build anything he wanted to build. Uh, you say a go-kart furniture, a treehouse, on one condition. First, he had to draw it by hand. The practice of sketching before making made him realize how much care people put into products. Can you just say a word about what you think the significance of that was? I find that fascinating. In, in some ways, yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, like the perfect analogy or parallel to what, what other people might do. In some ways, it's, kinda, it's, it's akin to drafting an email before and then, and then rereading it and reviewing it before pressing send. Um, but the, draft, the drafting and the sketching of, a, of an object before you set about making it focuses your attention and forces you to think through what you want to create and why you want to create it and what the purpose of each aspect of it might be. It's that deep thinking that you can bring to what you're beginning to embark on in that early phase of creativity and that, that drawing process that allows you to, to be more sophisticated in, in what you set out to make. Hmm. Uh, Jonathan Ive goes on to achieve tremendous success very, very quickly. I mean, his brilliance is evident from a very, very early age, and of course, ultimately, he does find himself uh, at Apple, which for a long time is a very, very happy home for him and a place where his genius is allowed to, to flourish and flower. Tim Cook is, of course, a very different sort of, of person, bringing a very different array of skills and perspective to Apple. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about how you describe his background is that it is not nearly as simple as we might think. That is, when somebody is more of a numbers person and kind of all about crispness and efficiency, uh, we expect that to be kind of the sum total of, of who they are. But you tell us that uh, as a youngster, his teachers likened him to a golden retriever for being so uh, friendly and outgoing and kind to others and so on. Uh, but he was also voted most studious by his, uh, by his classmates and, uh, and sometimes had a real feeling of what you call otherness in that small town down south where he grew up. I just really appreciate the fact that, that there is more to Tim Cook than we might assume from just seeing how he led Apple. Uh, and I, I applaud you for taking the time to show us just how complicated he is. Yeah, I mean, he, he, grew, up, uh, he grew up in, a, in an interesting time and had a, had a number of events that really shaped and informed his view of the world. Um, one of them that he cites um, often is, is witnessing a, a cross-burning in, in Alabama, and it, it imprinted and impressed upon him some of the some of the way that people could be treated differently because of the color of their skin. Uh, race remains a, a, obviously a big issue in the southeast. It remains a big issue across the the country, but in Alabama at that time, it was particularly um, the the state was particularly troubled by issues of race and his awareness of it and consciousness about it. And he was a bit ahead of it, ahead of his time in terms of in terms of giving voice of, uh, and concern to that, 
uh, in the classroom, as teachers recall, and talking about it often. And that's something that's been, um, been, I guess, in the back of his mind as he's come into a leadership role in Apple and something that he's lent voice to and trying to make Apple, uh, put Apple on the right side of uh, various issues in the U.S. You tell us that uh, before he came to Apple, he worked for IBM. Uh, I think he began working there in 1982, and you call IBM the perfect place for Cook. Why was he such a good match for IBM, or why was IBM such a good match for Tim Cook? I think by that point, Tim Cook had become really rigid in terms of his work ethic, and IBM was known as this relatively stodgy place where people wore press white shirts and were very diligent in the work they did. And, and by joining a company with that ethos, Tim Cook was really able to distinguish himself relatively early in his career. He became known as a high performer. Um, and the other thing that was, was really remarkable about him landing there was that they were at the, the earliest phase, uh, phases of um, perpetuating the personal computer revolution. And so he got put onto an assembly line relative, or put in charge of aspects of an assembly line relatively early in his career. And that became a, a defining, um, defining area of expertise for him over the next few decades. It's what he brought to Apple that made Apple really rebound from the, from the brink of bankruptcy. We're speaking with New York Times reporter Trip Mickle about his book, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. One of the interesting contrasts between Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, and there's a million of them, including just kind of basically what was most important to Tim Cook versus what was important to, to, to Steve Jobs or, 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 or Jonathan Ives, who were more on kind of the design end of things. But one thing that is a contrast that most of us would not even be aware of is that you tell us that Steve Jobs favored rivalries, uh, in a sense, a certain kind of constructive conflict between colleagues, between uh, you know various people working on, on things. You tell us Steve Jobs had favored rivalries between executives, encouraging people with egos to advance ideas that he could pick from to make great products. He could keep those dueling personalities in check. You tell us, though, Tim Cook had a very different vision about how Apple should function. And uh, from the sounds of it, he had no use whatsoever for that kind of culture or atmosphere. Yeah, Tim Cook was not going to be the uber ego that Steve Jobs was. Part of the reason Steve Jobs was able to, able to balance these rivalries and encourage encourage egos was that his ego was was always the biggest ego in the room. And so every, everyone else would, would step back when he made a final decision and, and accede to his wishes. Tim Cook, on the other hand, was coming from a different aspect of the business. He didn't have the same clout or perspective or, or instinct when it came to developing product. And so what he needed everyone to do was, uh, was to work together and come up with the right solution and, and agree to it and advance it that way. It was just a different way of operating. And uh, the result was a more egalitarian and democratic system than more autocratic uh, operation, the operations approach that, that Steve Jobs favored. 
So when uh, Steve Jobs is is gone, and we have this company Apple uh, trying to figure out what is next, uh, just describe the the challenge that faced them at that point in time, and where Apple was sort of in the world of technology at that point in time. Um, when Steve Jobs died, Apple was was in a, a strong position, but in a position of tremendous growth. It was four years after the introduction of the iPhone. Uh, at the time, it was making about 20 million iPhones. Over the course of the past decade, it's increased that number on a, you know, to a total of 200 million. Um, so a tenfold increase in the number of iPhones that it, that it made. And, and as, a, as a result of that, it, it was all of a sudden drawing a lot of criticism because it, it was moving from this nimble company that was respected for its innovation into really an empire that was going to face criticism over the treatment of the factory workers in China that, uh, that were the backbone of, or, and, and backbone and then integral to making the iPhone uh, and sh- that was shipped overseas or uh, its environmental impact and how it was, uh, and Greenpeace began to focus on some of that as well. Um, these were the issues that were beginning to bubble up as Steve Jobs died, and these were just very different questions or challenges put to Apple than the challenges that were that it faced over the prior decade. Hmm. I want to just step back for a moment in time because I think one of the things that uh, I want to make sure people understand is that although your book is titled After Steve, uh, you do spend some time talking about how Steve Jobs led Apple in those final years before his death in 2011, and in particular the close work that he did uh, with with uh, Jonathan Ive uh, and and others. And one of the things that's uh, very very interesting is this is shortly after Ive comes to Apple, and uh, there are conversations about uh, some struggles that Apple was having uh, at the time. In fact, you tell us Ive's coronation as head of design at Apple came amid a siege. <laughs> and so there were some struggles going on at this point in time. And what what was such a, an immense relief to Jonathan Ive was that Steve Jobs ultimately had no issue with what the wonderful design studio was coming up with. It was a matter of getting those ideas to management and making management understand what was important and what needed to be preserved as these ideas took shape. And I think it's really important for us to understand that even then, before Apple had become a multi-trillion dollar company, that that even at, even when it was that size, it was still large enough that just because you came up with a wonderful idea didn't necessarily mean that by the time it, <laughs> it got produced and created and shared with the world that it would be the same idea or that that process would be seamless and effective. Can you just talk for a moment about that challenging scenario? Yeah, I mean, the book details this through the account of the development of the Apple Watch. And that story obviously is rooted in the the design studio because they drove its, the designers drove its development. Johnny Ive was, was the chief driver of that process. But in the course of that process, what increasingly began to happen is 
that this design studio, which I've himself had made sure was uh, a place like almost a sanctuary that was removed from the co- from the concerns of costs or engineering constraints. He he wanted it to be a place where people dreamed big and pursued big ideas and maybe maybe said, oh, you know, others think this is impossible, but we're going to try to figure out how to do this. So so if if someone came into the studio that that raised concerns about the cost of something or said that something was impossible, they might, they often found that their badge access to the studio would be quietly revoked. They'd no longer be able to enter it. During the course of the the watch process, more and more people were coming into the studio because they were making a lot of different products connected to the watch, including the bands related to the watch, three different watch faces because they had an aluminum version a, a um, watch cases, an aluminum version, a stainless steel version, and a gold version. And all of these required engineering support and the support of operations figures who were going to make sure that these products were made on the manufacturing lines. And there's one scene in the book where they're in the course of talking about a feature on the watch, um, a small dial on, on the right of the watch that uh, was going to be a signature component of it. Johnny Ive wanted that to be cut with a high-end tooling piece that was going to be really, really expensive. And the operations people recommended using a different system, a laser system. And then in the course of that, they said that, well, it's going to cost less. And two of the designers said, well, we're not going to do that. That's something that a rival would do. In this case, they they decided that's something that Samsung would do. We We need to do something that that is as nice as possible, uh, i.e. we need to spend more because in spending more, they would have a product that they believed would have more longevity. But those are the type of cost pressures that began to come to bear on the design studio and change the way it operated. Hmm. When you talk about the development of the Apple Watch, one of the really interesting points made, and it speaks to what you were just talking about in terms of certain details about its appearance uh, is the fact that because the iWatch was somebody that people were going to actually be wearing on their body, its appearance was of paramount importance versus uh, other products. And, and beauty is something always valued at Apple, but it's like the, the beauty of the physical appearance took on an added importance because we were talking about the Apple Watch versus these other devices that one slips in one's pocket or that sit on the the desktop. Uh, And I think that's a distinction that really might be lost on somebody who's not as deeply seated in the world of design. Right. Um, They knew that this was going to be something that was very personal to people. They were going to wear it. Um, And when you think about what you wear, you bring a different sensibility to that. One of the things they were concerned about was historically they'd made one product that looked the same that everybody used. Um, That's not a big deal, to your point, when you slide it in your pocket or put it on the table. If it's the same iPhone as the person across from you has, it's just an iPhone. But watches had been something that for for decades and centuries, really, people had picked and chosen different variations of a watch um, in a way that would reflect their own personal tastes and their own personal styles. So they had to bring new elements to this, to their 
product development process mm. so that unlike the iPhone, which was one product used by all, the watch could be one product that could be personalized by all. So you had different different watch bands and leather or a Milanese loop or even in, in fabric that people could, could wear and then change up. You know, if they wanted it blue, they could have blue. If they wanted it in pink, they could have pink. And that variety was what they considered to be integral to making sure it was accepted by people accustomed to being able to pick and choose different watches. Hmm. Uh, I'm reminded of something that comes up earlier in the book when we're talking about the development of the iPhone and uh, the difference between uh, the curve in the corners of the iPhone apps versus the kind of the outer dimensions of the phone and those curves would be different kind of uh emblematic of 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 those details being overseen and and chosen by by different facets of the company this actually reminds me of an interesting passage where you talk about one of johnny uh, ives's rivals at apple scott fortsall who uh was uh part of kind of a slightly different aspect of the design process. I wanted to ask you about something that that comes up in this portion where uh, apparently one of the things that Scott Fortsall would, would, was important for him in terms of hiring was an emphasis on extracurriculars, uh, something that was uh, apparently important to Apple, at least at some point. You write, creating a company of expert programmers who were also part-time musicians, avid skiers, diehard surfers. Uh, They wanted engineers with outside interests because it made the office a more interesting place to work and resulted in more thoughtfully made products. That really runs counter to what we often assume to be the typical employee at a place like Apple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was foundational to how Apple hired. And that was really um, part of that idea and that ethos that Steve Jobs had of Apple needing to live at the intersection of liberal arts and technology. Uh, It it sought out people who had interests that transcended technology and um, came from other areas. An interesting thing has happened in Silicon Valley over the past decade, though, and that as the companies have gotten so much bigger and as it's become more clear that technology is going to be a focal point of the economy and a big opportunity in terms of jobs in the future, we've seen colleges react and respond and students at universities respond by becoming experts in areas like computer science or uh, hardware engineering and and uh, mechanical engineering. And, and as a result, you're not getting uh, the same type, of, same type of people beginning to work at these companies as you got decades ago, where you might have somebody who, who studied philosophy but really just also was a computer geek. And so, so they spent their day maybe thinking about Nietzsche and then spent their evening tinkering around with software code on their computer. That was the type of person that Apple was really looking for years ago. Finding that person is becoming more difficult this day and age. Interesting. Um, when you're talking about uh, Scott Fortzall and some difference of opinion over the iPhone, one of the most interesting themes of your book comes up, and that is the nature of ideas. Uh, and, and apparently an, 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 an idea that Steve Jobs and then Jonathan Ives had about ideas, and that's kind of the place of hesitancy. And... Uh, 
So Jonathan Ive believed, apparently as Steve Jobs did, that ideas were fragile, tentative things that came at unexpected times from unknown places. He and Jobs shared a belief that ideas should be nurtured, not crushed. What an interesting idea. I mean, and what a tricky thing, because, of course, not all ideas are great ideas, but the idea that hesitancy or caution could crush a great idea, I mean, that is so significant in the story of Apple and some of the amazing things they've done. Right, right. I mean, I was very precious about this. He believed that that if you were going to think ambitiously, um, you're invariably going to going to dream up things that there are constraints to in the in the real world, right? If you're a real dreamer, um, you're going to run into into problems that um, that would make those dreams impossible to fulfill. A great example of this that's detailed in the book is in the in the late 1980s. He became really you know, fasc- fascinated and disgusted by the, uh, the the credit card industry. And it's it was, you know, taking off at that time. And one of the things he couldn't quite wrap his head around was the disconnect between the fact that this tiny piece of plastic, which he considered like a, a lesser material, had and carried a tremendous amount of monetary value. You could swipe it and spend thousands of dollars. And he just couldn't quite wrap his head around why, if you could spend thousands of dollars, you weren't doing so on something that that uh, suggested more value. And so he developed, um, for a final project in college, he developed a, a stone medallion that people would be able to carry around. It was really polished. It was very fine. It was black. And his idea was that you would put it on a machine at the register and then it would, you know, immediately allow you to pay for something. And then you'd get uh, a notification when you put that on a machine at home explaining what you had paid for and it would keep track of things for you. Essentially, in the late 1980s, he was thinking about a precursor to Apple Pay, but it would take what? couple decades before that could be realized, couple, couple, two and a half decades almost. Um, and that, that's why he's, he, he had this strong feeling about fragile ideas, because sometimes those ideas, if you were to sit there and say, well, you can't do that, you can't create a medallion and do all those things, you might never strive to fulfill that ambition in the future, uh, which is something that Apple went on to eventually do. Hmm. And it really gets us thinking about you know, what is the proper place of caution at a place like like Apple. And for instance, I just want to briefly mention Steve, uh, Scott Fortzall's hesitancy about uh, uh, the iPhone uh, was about the way it might change our lives, our daily lives for the, for the worse in terms of, of consuming our attention, disrupting conversations, endangering drivers. And, uh, and ultimately he feared that a Apple Watch might be even more of an interruption in our daily lives. And so it's so interesting. I mean, there are no uh, pure villains and pure heroes here, uh, just complicated people wrestling with some very, very complicated stories. And ultimately the story is how Tim Cook's vision for Apple uh, sort of wins the day over, uh, over the vision of, 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 of Jonathan Ives. What do you see as the future for Apple? What kind of a position is it in at this moment? 
Apple's in a position of strength right now. Um, it, it still dominates the the smartphone market. There hasn't been a new technology that's upended or disrupted the smartphone as being a fundamental part of our lives. Uh, you know, when I say dominate, Apple's market share is only about half of the half of the smart smartphone market in the U.S. But it takes about 85% plus of the total profit from the market. So its dominance is clear in the profitability of the iPhone itself. And that gives it a tremendous amount of runway. That plus the fact that around the world, more than a billion people use, use the iPhone. And then essentially they built the largest cable distribution network uh, ever, known, <laughs> ever known to mankind because it, it, it transcends boundaries. I mean, they've built an empire unto themselves and they're leveraging that empire by selling apps and games and then developing their own apps, which they can then encourage people to subscribe to uh, on a monthly basis, um, whether that's Apple Music or TV Plus or some of the other things that they've introduced. And that's become a real, uh, a real boon to their bottom line. It's allowed them to generate what's what everyone in business wants, which is recurring revenue on a monthly basis, instead of having to wait every two years for people to buy a new iPhone. Mm. And that's why they became the first U.S. company to reach the milestone of $1 trillion. It's an incredible story, truly incredible, and you've told it very well. The book, again, is After Steve, How Apple Became a $2 Trillion Company and Lost Its Soul, published by William Morrow. The author, Trip Mickle. Trip Mickle, congratulations on a superb book, and thank you for being my morning show guest. Best wishes. Thanks so much for having me.